Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. Before getting into the episode today, I wanted to share with you the exciting news that the podcast now has a website runfitraj.com. That's r u n f i t r a j.com. Please check out the website. Uh, it has all the podcast. It has all the show notes. There is a very useful search function we can, uh, where you can search the various episodes and the show notes. And do send me any feedback or questions uh, that you have. That's runfitraj.com. This is part two of our interview with Alex Hutchinson, who is a world famous author from Canada. Last week, we published part one. And in part one, we covered Alex's breakthrough 1500 meter race, the concept of central governor or what limits endurance performance. Then we talked about pain and the difference between pain threshold and pain tolerance and how to improve your pain tolerance. In part two today, we talk about hydration, how to reduce the perception of effort. And Alex shares some of the key insights he gathered being a part of Nike's Breaking Two project as a journalist. The Breaking Two project, as you may recollect, was the 2017 attempt uh, by Eliot Kipchoge and two other athletes to break the two-hour marathon uh, barrier. And Alex was one of the few journalists in the world who had access to that. Alex also talks about the Vaporfly shoe, which was Nike's revolutionary shoe, which was launched to coincide with this Breaking Two attempt. And then we discuss when in an actual race we expect the two-hour barrier in the marathon to be broken. Finally, we have the quiz as well as the recommendations from Alex's side on various uh, resources. So do stay tuned for a very engaging conversation. I also urge you to check out part one when you get a chance. Now to this episode. The other one which I wanted to touch upon is, uh, you know, I haven't seen this sort of a debate, uh, which is uh, around hydration, right? I mean, in the in the book and uh, there are polar opposite in terms of views. In, uh, like some people don't, uh, uh, or there's enough evidence to say that people have won championships and people have won medals without having uh, any amount, I mean, any, any hydration or effectively no hydration to people, you know, who prescribe, who are very prescriptive about the way they go about their hydration. Let's say, you know, drink 700 ml of fluids every hour or one, one liter or what, what have you, right? Uh, so can you just take us through what's exactly going on here? And more importantly, how should the listeners who are not elites, but an everyday athlete should start thinking about hydration? Yeah, this is a deep one. Uh, I hope you have an hour here to get, to get, no, <laughs> um, this, this, this is super, super uh, controversial. Uh, um, I would say the traditional view circa 1995 was that um, any dehydration is bad that you're going to harm your performance and therefore you should aim to replace all the, if you, you know, if you're sweating at all, you should aim to replace that during the exercise, uh, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Um, and that's, and, and, and relying on your thirst is just doesn't help because for whatever reason, your thirst, your sensation of thirst lags behind your physiological needs. And, and it, and it's, it's, it's undeniably true that if you go out for, a run or a bike ride and you have water with you and you're instructed, just drink water whenever you want. Do, do you know, it's up to you. You will drink less than you're, you're losing and you'll finish your run or your ride 
dehydrated to a certain degree. And so that was taken to be evidence that you can't trust your thirst. You have to have a prescriptive approach to, to hydration in order to make sure you're replacing your sweat losses. Now, there, there is pushback to that. Or, or, and in fact, Tim Noakes, who I mentioned earlier with regard to the central governor, he has sort of led the the, rev the revisionist approach to that. And I remember one of the articles that actually got me interested into this in the science of endurance back in about 2006 or seven was a, a debate in a journal um, in which Tim Noakes was arguing the proposition that dehydration doesn't impair performance, which I thought was ludicrous. But I read his, his article and I thought, oh, there is... What, one of the fundamental points he's making is that we don't distinguish, or at least studies have failed to distinguish between thirst and dehydration. And so all the studies that showed that dehydration harmed performance also made people thirsty. They basically put them in a heat chamber to make them lose a bunch of fluids, and then they had them exercise, but didn't let them drink. So they were dehydrated, but they were also thirsty. And Noakes's claim was that if you make people if you let people get dehydrated, but allow them to drink whenever they want. So just make sure they're not thirsty and don't worry about dehydration. Their, their performance doesn't suffer. And in fact, the human body has a, has the ability to adjust its, the concentration of its blood and, and bodily fluids to, to keep its osmolality. So it's, it's, it's it, the concentration of its fluids the same, even if you lose some, some water. And he did a few studies that, that seems to suggest that. And so that has led to uh, a sort of, yeah, the, the opposite polarity of the debate is to say that drink when you're thirsty. Just don't, don't worry about anything else. When you're thirsty, drink. When you're not thirsty, don't drink. You don't need to worry about anything. And both of these sides, which is you, you must drink to replace your flu, you know, and I, I should say the, the, the pro-drinking side has moderated a little bit because they now realize you can sweat several liters of fluid an hour. You can't drink that much, especially during exercise, because your stomach won't let that much, you, your gastric emptying rate, the rate at which fluid leaves your stomach, for most people tops out somewhere around a liter an hour. So there's a limit to how much you can drink. So if you're, if you're exercising hard in hot conditions for, for many hours, you're going to lose some fluids. But what the, so what they would say is drink as much as you can to, to limit your fluid losses as, as much as possible versus the just drink when you're thirsty. And both of those sides are very passionate about their debate and both have some, some evidence to support them. Uh, my own take, and I guess which I would, in terms of trying to give some useful advice, um, the way I, and, and I'll, I'll broaden this out to, 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 this is the way I see all the sort of limit, limiters that, that I talk about in the book, whether it's pain or hydration or fuel or oxygen. There's a point at which if you run low on oxygen or, in this case, fluid, you're going to trigger, trigger some warning signals in your body. And the manifestation of those warning signals is going to be that exercise is going to start to feel harder. Your, your perception of effort is going to go up. You're, you're, you're going to, as you run out of, as you get low on fl fluids, um, it's going to change your perception of effort, which is probably going to have negative effects on your performance. It's not, you're not actually out of fluids, you're not being physically stopped from performing well. It's just things are going to get harder. Now, at a certain point, you do run into true physical limitations. I mean, you can die of thirst and you can die of lack of fuel and you can die of lack of oxygen. But for the most part, what we're dealing with is not the sort of 
stop sign, the, the absolute brick wall. We're dealing with um, warnings. Brake, brakes being applied. Yeah, yeah. The, the brakes are being applied even against your will. And it's possible to, to, to sort of overcome that with sufficient motivation to some degree. So there are examples, um, as you mentioned, of people doing very well with very little fluids. And there are numerous, several examples of marathoners like Haley Gaber Selassie setting world records while losing 10% of their starting body mass, which is way more than the sort of 2% that, that some physiologists consider the sort of threshold beyond which your performance is separate. So if someone's setting a world record while losing 10% of their body mass, it's hard to say that, oh, you lost 2.5% of your body mass, therefore you must be really, really slow. So I think it's smart to try to avoid dehydration to the extent possible. And some people may be really sensitive to their thirst and it's enough to just drink when they're thirsty. Most of us maybe aren't as good at listening to those signals as, as maybe we were, our ancestors were thousands of years ago. And also if you're doing it in the context of a race, if a marathon, you can't just drink anytime you feel like it. There's, there's refreshment tables only, let's say every 5k or something like that. And even when you get to that refreshment table, you're not going to just stop and drink for the most part, you're not going to just stop and drink however much you feel like till you feel great. You're going to take a quick drink and then keep going. And your stomach is not feeling great and you spill half the drink over yourself. So even if you're trying to drink whenever you're thirsty, you're only getting limited opportunities to drink. And those are suboptimal opportunities where you're not fully quenching your thirst. So the, the advice to just don't worry about fluid as long as you're not thirsty, I think that doesn't necessarily optimize performance. Um, uh, conversely, if you're spending a lot of t- a lot of time, like I have to drink all this time, that also has a cost. It has a cost in terms of time and com- stomach comfort. It's not very comfortable to be constantly drinking right to the limits of your gastric a- emptying. Plus, your body weight is going up, right? Yeah, I mean, in, in, if, and, and it's that much more mass to when Haley Gaber Selassie loses ten percent of his body weight during a marathon. You'd you'd caution you'd, you'd hesitate to to recommend to anyone to do that, but the fact that he did it, he's a lot lighter for the last half of that race, uh, and he's got no digestive right. issues. So there's what it comes down to is balancing a bunch of factors in terms of yes, if you get dehydrated, you're going to be uh, you're going to probably it's going to things are going to feel harder, um, but if you spend all your time drinking, you're going to spend you're going to lose a lot of time. And, and I think the balance is, especially if it's, let's say you're doing a marathon on a warm day, you need to make it, you need to have some sense. How much do I sweat? How much can I, am I comfortable drinking? And, and this also, and it gets more complicated because you're also maybe taking in calories w- when you drink. So you also have to figure out how many calories of carbohydrate do I want to take in? So there's, the calculation becomes a little more complicated and it's, it's probably better to do that than to just sort of say, la la la, I'll just, I'll just drink if I feel thirsty because you probably won't drink as much as you could. And that could harm your performance. Now, the one final point I'll make is that, um, when we're talking about hydration, uh, what uh, everything I've been saying is focused on, uh, on, on on performance and what's going to ha- allow me to race the fastest or or be most comfortable in my run. Um, there are situations where hydration is a more serious, you know, if not life and death, and it has health effects. And if you're doing an ultra marathon, if you're or if you're out there for six hours or eight hours, or if you're 
um, doing it in, in extreme heat. You know, let's say it's 30 degrees Celsius, uh, which isn't extreme heat, I realize, but for, for endurance sports, it's, that's, that's really, you know, if you're in the upper 20s Celsius, that's hot. Then you really need to be more, more careful because it's, it, it can be easier to, to, to run into, uh, more severe dehydration that can, that can, um, cause problems. I think heat stroke and dehydration, as I discussed in the book, they get sort of mixed together and they're not the same thing, but, um, yeah, so there's, there's hydration for optimal performance. And then there's like, yeah, if you're going out for, a, if you're going out, if it's 30 degrees Celsius and you go out for a run and it's 45, 45 minute run, whatever, you're going to come back, you're going to be dehydrated and you're going to drink when you're dehydrated. If you're out for a few hours and it's 30 degrees Celsius, then you need to make sure you have some, some sources of fluid during the run. And, and, and so it's, again, that, that comes back to, it's not enough to just go out for a run. And then if you're thir- then say, oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, wait, I'm in the middle of, you know, the countryside and I don't have anywhere to drink. You have to be thinking ahead when you're in those more extreme circumstances or more, more prolonged runs. Okay. Understood. That's quite, uh, uh helpful. Now, uh, moving on, uh, to another topic, which is, uh, perception of uh, effort and, you know, how to reduce the perception of effort and thus improve performance. That's that's another topic which is of great interest. What are your practical uh, tips? I mean, you touched upon it to say that, look, some of this is part of training. I mean, training is very important. You can't sit on a couch and expect to improve your, uh, you know, improve your prayer pain tolerance. Uh, but practically, what are some of the techniques that uh, you recommend? So f- first, I should just maybe give a little... Uh, introduction or, or clarification on the concept of perception of effort. And when you, when you asked earlier about what I actually think about the central governor and stuff, maybe a, a better answer would have been to say that the wh- where I sort of end up these days is that I think perception, your subjective perception of effort is the kind of master switch that determines your performance. And what, what that means is let's say you're out for a run and I stop you and say, okay, tell me on a scale of one to 10, how hard are you pushing? Not how much are you suffering, but how how hard is it to keep going at this pace? And if you know, if you say six, that's one thing. If you say eight, that's another thing. And if you say ten, I know that you're done. You you can't keep going for much longer. And 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 so it's this it's this very sort of subjective concept, but ultimately it is that it it is the master switch because when you feel you can't go, that you can't go like that. That's it. And so the question is, what is your subjective perception of effort? And that that's another controversial topic. But, um, I think the way I would think of it is that it's your subjective sense of effort is integrating all the sort of forms of feedback that you have and all your sort of environmental cues. So if you're out of breath, if you're hot, if your uh, you know muscles are hurting, those things contribute to your sense of effort. But also, if you're distracted, uh, if if you're um, you know in a bad mood, uh, if you're all, all the things going on in your head as well as in your body can all join together to create this perception of effort. So, like you said, the the the, the clearest and easiest and or most straightforward way of reducing your perception of effort is is training so that your body gets stronger, your heart gets stronger, your muscles get stronger. And so running at a given pace is easier for your body. And so your perception of effort is lower. That's great. We know that, that, that nobody needs, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, to be told that training helps you run faster, but are there other ways of, of more directly affecting your perception of effort? 
Um, in other words, for a given level of physical fitness, can you alter your perception of effort? And there are a few ways. Um, one of them is caffeine. Um, there've been lots of disputes over the years about, or lots of theories over the years about why caffeine is such a sort of common performance enhancer. And the, the current thinking is basically it interferes with the, the buildup of a brain chemical called adenosine that's associated with your perception of effort uh, indirectly. And, and so the reason caffeine helps people run faster is that it makes it feel easier for a given level of muscular exertion. Um, there are also ways of making your perception of effort higher. And, and one of those that's been studied a bunch lately is mental fatigue. So, uh, if you're, if you've, and, and they do studies where you sort of, they have subjects staring at a computer screen, doing a task that requires concentration. So shapes are flashing on the screen and you're hitting a button as quickly as you can compared to just sitting in front of the same screen and watching a, you know, a documentary and physical performance is far worse after doing something that requires concentration. And that's associated with an increase in the perception of effort. So you finish this task, you hop on an exercise bike and start pedaling at a given power output. And some of this, the scientists ask you, so how would you rate your perception of effort? And suddenly, even though it's the same power output, you, you, right from the start, even before you're physically tired, you're saying, yeah, this is six out of 10. Whereas you would say it was four out of 10 if it was um, if, if, if you weren't mentally fatigued. Didn't have yeah. And so, and, and in terms of practical things, there, I think that's something that to really bear in mind. If you're, I know for me, sometimes, uh, you know, you, you train hard day after day, after day, after day, and then you get to your big goal race and you're like, okay, I'm going to taper. So I'm letting my body recover from the training. All of a sudden I have a bunch of extra time in, in, in my day. Cause I'm not going out for a workout for a couple of hours. And so before the Sunday race, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to catch up on all my chores. I'm going to do my taxes. I'm going to do all this. And I spend the whole day, uh, d d you know, doing mental work. And that's not what this research tells me is that that's not necessarily optimal. And this, I remember in university, this was a common sort of thing I used to think about. We would go on, you know, a bus ride to, to get to it, to a track meet, you know, and, and sometimes it would be like a 10 hour bus ride to get to the, a big track meet. And people would be doing their their homework because they're university students. You have to, and it, but it, it's sort of I'd sort of have the sense that I don't feel at my freshest if I spend this ten hour ride doing calculus. And so I, sometimes I would just decide to you know what I'm just going to stare out the window, or read a book that I enjoy, you know, watch a video or something. And I think in hindsight, th th those were good decisions. Not that we can all always afford to just ignore all our responsibilities in the world, but understanding that before a big performance, yes, we have a physical taper we back our training off so that we're not physically exhausted when we go to a race but we should also take care of our mental uh uh freshness making sure we're we're eager and ready to push ourselves because we're going to need all our mental resources to perform well too so that's another way of altering perception of effort is 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 trying to avoid mental fatigue and i guess the 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 maybe the the other thing i'll mention which which uh i i well there there are potentially ways of almost directly altering perception of effort. And there's something called transcranial direct current stimulation, which is a form of electric brain stimulation. It's very controversial and the evidence is not yet clear whether it does what people think it does. But there's a, there are a fair number of studies that seem to suggest that if you apply electrodes to the regions of the brain that are associated with perception of effort, you can alter how hard an effort feels. Um, 
there is a US company which is also now marketing a consumer product, right? Yeah, it's called uh, Halo Neuroscience. Halo uh, and it's these headphones yeah. that you w- wear on your head. And I have mixed feelings about about that because even in the lab, this this being able to 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 alter your perception of effort seem is is doesn't always seem to work. So there's a lot of questions about it. And that's with scientists applying electrodes to specific regions of your of your head. And if you've just got these headphones on, you're just kind of hoping that you're wearing the headphones in the right place and it's hitting the, the right regions of the brain. I, I've chatted to the, the guys who've, who who started this company and, you know, I think they, they have some interesting ideas and they're trying to do something neat, but uh, I'm, I'm not convinced personally that, that it's, that it works in the way that they, they claim or they hope it works, but we'll see. Um, at the very least, it sounds like the, scientific evidence is not yet there it may it may come in years to come but not that's yet a, that's absolutely right there are, I, I can find a you know i could point to at least a dozen studies that show very interesting results suggesting it works but there's just as many studies suggesting that it doesn't work and so in that case uh you know there's all sorts of and then this gets into sort of deep issues in science of how do we know something is right? How do we deal with issues of publication bias, even if it's unconscious that positive studies get get published because they're exciting and negative studies just languish in a desk drawer because uh, they don't seem that exciting. And so we only hear about the positive studies. So it really seems like something works. So I want to be cautious about that. Um, but what I would say is that there's some suggestive evidence suggesting that it may be possible to even directly ev- alter perception of effort, uh, which is not something that I think is necessarily great for sport. It's not to me, that's not sort of uh, a heroic accomplishment to set a new personal best just because you electrocuted your brain. That, uh, to me, the sort of the whole point of sport is 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 wrestling with those those demons, trying to push yourself beyond your your your, your perceived limits. But anyway, and, and to that to that end, the the last thing I'll mention, I guess, is this idea of going back to sports psychology is as a t- technique called motivational self talk, which is really simple. Uh, it's, it's basically just trying to control your, uh, uh, yeah, your internal monologue to, to, to that. I know when I race, uh, you know, especially once you get into the middle of the, uh, the, the, you know, this, the middle parts or the later parts of the race, you, I'm full of self doubts and I'm full of, uh, you know, existential questioning of what the heck I'm doing <laughs> and that, you know, that's, there's no way I, I can't keep this pace up. No, this is why am I, why am I here? And and there's some really interesting research um, that shows or that suggests very strongly that this becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you've got this master switch, the subjective perception of effort, it's basically your brain's attempt to evaluate how hard you're working. And if you're consciously saying, I can't do this, this is too hard, this is really hard, then that seems to bleed into your your evaluation of how hard you're working. And all of a sudden you feel like you're working at eight out of 10 instead of seven and a half or whatever the case may be. Whereas if you can take control and, and, and learn to uh, through, through practice to identify some more positive things of saying, and, and convince yourself to be able to, when the going gets tough to, to have the first thought in your mind be, this is the moment I've been practicing for. I can do this. I'm ready. As opposed to this is terrible. I, I should take up a different hobby. Then there's, there's some evidence at least that that actually will alter your perception of effort and in, increase your performance. And to me, not to get too into value judgments and things like that, but to me, that seems like a much more worthy way of, of, uh, you know, setting a new best or, or pushing back your limits than just applying some electricity. Okay. 
Thanks, uh, thanks for that. That's uh, quite, um, you know two, three very good, useful, practical uh, uh, tips there. Uh, so, Alex, you had the privilege of being one of the very few journalists in the world who had access to the Breaking Two uh, project, and you have uh, written and spoken about it. Uh, can we start with first uh, a slightly open question, which is, please share with us some key insights uh, from from that experience, and then I want to come to the questions, the obvious questions around when will the two-hour be barrier be actually broken in a in a race and uh, things like that. So over to Yeah, I think that when the the first Breaking Two project was announced back in I guess late 2016, there was a tremendous amount of skepticism that taking care of all these super minor details could add up to a measurable difference that worrying about the exact uh, slope of the, of a marathon course and having runners uh, pacing the racer so that there's to, to break, to block the wind, even, uh, even on a still day and getting the temperature just right. Uh, all these little details that they would actually have a measurable difference. And so the first breaking two race in 2017, when Elliot Kipchoge ran two hours, zero minutes, 25 seconds, that was not a sub two clocking, but to me, that was probably the most significant. That was probably more significant than, than, uh, I guess two years later when the Ineos, the Ineos one where he actually broke to, because, you know, Ineos, he, he ran, uh, well, I guess it was, you know, he ran 40 something seconds faster than he had at breaking two, but breaking two, the first breaking two, he ran two and a half minutes faster than anyone had ever run at that point. And so that was a real eye opener. Right? And I, until it happened, I wasn't convinced that he would, that, that, that they'd be able to make such a big difference. So it was a sort of, it was a, it was a victory for the kind of take care of the details approach to, uh, to optimizing performance. Now I can't, I can't say that without acknowledging also that he had a new pair of shoes, the, the Vaporfly 4%. And it's not entirely clear that, I mean, or at least it's, it's, it's possible that all of his improvement was just virtually all of his improvement was from the shoes. And that actually all those things, the drafting and the new uniforms and the, the optimized course and the perfect temperature, all of that added up to nothing or to 10 seconds and, and the shoes added up to everything. I don't think that's quite the case. I don't think that's the situation. Otherwise, we, we would be seeing world records at Berlin and, and, and London with, with these shoes. So I think, but, but it is important to acknowledge that these shoes, these new shoes with carbon fiber plates in them, make it very difficult to figure out, to, 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 to answer fully what's happening in these races and what's happening, not just in the breaking two races, but in races around the world. So there's an X factor, but to me, the big takeaway was that, yeah, you, you, you need, you need to think about the, or if you really want to optimize things, you have to think about the details. And, and it's even just when I look at runners in big city marathons, often you'll see them running through city streets and they're just terrible at following the tangents. They're, they're taking these big wide turns. They're going to end up covering an extra couple hundred meters in the race. And so you can see some of the changes that happened after the first breaking two race, they started like in Berlin and other places, they started painting a line on the course that shows the optimal route. 
to take the, so that you don't have to spend mental energy trying to figure out exactly where the tangent is. You know where the tangent is. And so if you want to, you can follow that tangent and you'll save a lot of time. And, and similarly, you know, you'd, you'd see groups of runners running three abreast. It's like, ah, you'd be, do better if to just tuck behind one, 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 one behind the other and you can take turns leading. Everyone benefits, but the air resistance matters. So, so some of those things I think were, were, uh, were takeaways that that I, I think the, the the key takeaway the first takeaways that stuck with me. So that was the first uh, first uh, first takeaway. Uh, so one related question is that see advancement is happening in multiple sports, right? I mean, so it is to me personally beyond a point dissecting what contributed to improvement in world records or you know in speed or distance in. Uh, any sport is really meaningless. I mean, beyond a point, you can't make a real comparison between multi-decadal uh, records, right? In fact, in one of your uh, podcasts, I remember listening, you saying like flat courses, for example, in marathon running, right? Flat courses like Berlin or London or Chicago, even I would argue, never existed like till maybe 30, 20, 30, 40 years back. So all of which has contributed, right? So it's you know, shoes have surely contributed in some in some measure, uh, but is is that any different from any other sport like uh, cycling or swimming? I mean, swimming had big breakthroughs when when uh, when they got those suits out, right? I mean, ten or twenty years, not ten, maybe twenty years back, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, this is a this is a really tricky and interesting debate, and and I would think I would say if let's say we're Formula One motor racing fans, no one's going to say. Hey, this is ridiculous. They, they can't have a new engine or a new, you know, a new component uh, in in racing because that's the whole point of Formula One. It's essentially an engineering competition. So I think one thing to understand is that every sport is different, and every sport has a, its own set of embodied assumptions. And running is probably the simplest sport in the world. There's, I mean, there's a reason that. Well, uh, there's probably many reasons, but uh, there's a reason that distance running is dominated by uh, runners from East Africa, from from Kenya and Ethiopia and other places. Um, Despite all the technology that we saw in places like Breaking 2, the fastest runners in the world come from a place where they grow up with virtually no technology and no equipment. And so there's a, I think... The, the sort of platonic ideal of of what a great running champion or a great performance is is that it's more than any other sport it's a function of the human doing it and not of whether they're sponsored by the right company so i think that's part of the reason that there's been more pushback in running uh to these new shoes despite the fact that performance has evolved over the over the d- decades in many ways whether it's you know track surfaces and shoes and t- and nutrition and things like that um the specific circumstances of these carbon plated shoes also added a twist you know they were introduced secretly at the 2016 Olympics without anybody else knowing about them and then even since then even though we're now 4 years later there's been ongoing issues with equal access and so it's one thing okay yeah we we marathon courses are faster but everyone runs on the same course in a given day so today's runners might be advantaged compared to 30 years ago but they're not advantaged relative to each other on a given course 
Whereas if one person is wearing a shoe that's two minutes faster than another on, on a marathon course, and the other person didn't even know about the shoe and didn't have the option to buy it, then it starts to, to rankle, especially if you happen to be the person who doesn't make the Olympics or doesn't make the Olympic podium or whatever the case may be, because someone else has a shoe that's, that's better than you. I don't think there's an easy answer to this. And I, I've actually probably been, I, I've been uneasy about it, but I haven't necessarily been someone pushing for banning these kinds of shoes because all the components of the shoes have been used for decades before carbon fiber plates, lightweight foams, whatever, anything you can think of. They, they've been used in many shoes for years with no complaints. So it's hard for me to justify banning a shoe just because it has a carbon fiber plate in it because we didn't ban them before. And it just happens to, to be that the, the designers at Nike got it right this time. They really nailed it. And then the way they introduced it sort of secretly at first and then uh, just to their athletes made it hard to sort of figure out what was happening and no one realized quite how good these shoes were. So it, it's created. And then, and then just when people had sort of accepted that, okay, there's a new breed of shoe and everyone's going to be a little bit faster. Then there was another, just earlier this year, that the, the Alpha Fly was the, uh, an even bigger shoe with a, with a thicker heel. And it, it, it was reputedly that, uh, you know, another 4% better almost than the 4%, the original Vaporfly 4%. And so that, to me, that was sort of seemed like, okay, come on. It's just mean every two years, we're going to have a new shoe that advantages one set of runners over the others. So it's a hard question. Um, you know, my, my wish is that it would all just go away and I wouldn't have to think about it. But in reality, you have to, you have to come up with rules that are defensible and that aren't just sort of punishing one company. And I think, you know, lately we've seen from world athletics, they've put new rules out on track shoes and they've, put a list of allowable shoes. And so they're trying to grapple with this issue. Um, and even the playing field, so to speak. Yeah. And it's not, and, and look, the, the playing field is never level, right? Like some athletes have access to far more resources than others. Some are going to have better equipment than others. Uh, it's just, they're, they're, if that's always a part of the, the world, but if the unevenness of the playing field is such that it sort of predetermines the the results of the race, then y you want to use whatever resources you have at your disposal to try and bring it back closer to even. It's never you, you never get to perfect, but you you want to get to 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 at least where it's not making a mockery of the race. Okay, so uh, let's put you on a spot. Uh, what's your take on when the two-hour barrier will be broken? I, I think you talked about many years back, uh, about 2075, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, back in 2014. That's a, that's a prediction that didn't age well. I, given the shoe situation, given that shoes are getting faster, I'd say in the next 10 years. I mean, we're still a ways away. 20141 is the, the official record. Um, that's, that's, that's still a ways away. And it, we may well hit a plateau uh, and just stall there for a little while. But I think... I do think there's something to be said. You know, Elliot Kipchoge has run 42.2 kilometers in less than two hours. Um, now you go to Berlin, you're not going to get the same setup of pacemakers and, and the course will be a little bit less, uh, have some more sharp turns and stuff, but ultimately we know a human can do it. And so I think what, what it will depend on is uh, we've obviously seen a, a sort of transcendent talent in Elliot Kipchoge over the last five or six years. Um, if someone else comes along with Kipchoge's talent, then having seen what Kipchoge, what Kipchoge was capable of doing, 
I don't think it's unreasonable to to think that it might happen on a legit course in 10 years. Um, that's bearing in mind the shoes, the improvement of shoes. And also it wouldn't surprise me if the way it happens is another event sort of like breaking two or Ineos, but done within the, without breaking any rules. So without having fresh pacemakers coming in part through the, through the race. So an optimized race, rather than just sort of hoping it happens during a big city race with a, with, you know, a loop course that's very flat and, and optimizing the weather and everything, and maybe not having too many other competitors. Cause I think sometimes what happens when you have, um, an amazing matchup. So for instance, this fall in, in, in London, we're expecting to see Elliot Kipchoge versus Kennedy Simbakile. Fantastic. The two fastest marathoners ever. But when you have the two fastest marathoners ever, and sometimes it's the, sometimes they push each other to new heights. Other times they end up sort of watching each other. No one wants to be the one to push the pace in case they leave themselves too weakened and the other person passes them. So um, getting not just the, the physiological and environmental setup, but also the psychological setup right, I think w- would be something that could contribute to bring it, to making it happen in the next 10 years. Yeah, plus I think there is also a lot of money now in marathoning, right? I mean, so resources are not going to be a, a constraint uh, because I guess, and this is probably the last remaining great athletic record after the sub four and the sub ten hundred meters and the sub four mile. Uh, this is this has caught the popular imagination. I mean, even non-runners or many of the non-runners also now know about this this mythical threshold, right? So that's uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely put, I mean, Elliot Kipchoge, more people have heard of him than of any other, any re- marathoner since, I don't know, maybe since uh, Alberto Salazar in the 1980s or something, you know, like he's really, he's he's front page news and that's great. The One question is, will the general public think, ah, the two hour marathon was done in, in Vienna in 2019. Why are we still talking about this? Will people understand that there's still a, a barrier to be broken under record legitimate rules and that's something people have been worried about for a while but yeah i think there's still enough interest to to hopefully uh draw in another few uh attempts at it okay uh so before we let you go uh alex uh i do a fun segment Uh, i call it a fun segment but it's just putting the guests on a spot and asking (laughs) them a quiz quiz of five questions Uh, so if you are ready then uh, we can uh, go through that Do, do do your worst before moving on, I wanted to request uh, all the listeners to please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It will only take you a couple of minutes, but it will help the show enormously and help other listeners to discover the show. So please do take a couple of moments to go and leave a rating and review on either Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you are using another app which allows you to leave a comment or a rating or review, like for example, CastBox, please do that either. We also request you to please check out the website runfitraj.com and also if you have any comments or suggestions to please write to me directly at runningandfitnesswithraj at gmail.com. You can follow all podcast related updates on Instagram at the handle runningandfitnesswithraj or on Facebook on the Facebook group Running and Fitness with Raj. Now let's get back to the show. So the first one is, uh, what's the longest standing record in athletics, men or women? Ah, well, it's definitely going to be an Eastern European woman (laughs) Um, for reasons that I, you know, I don't want to get accused of libel, but um, 
I will go with the women's 800 meter record. And then I just have to think of the name, Yarmila Kratokvilova. Yeah, that's true. That's correct. Uh, Yarmila Kratokvilova of uh, Czechoslovakia and women's 800 meters set all the way back uh, in 1983. Actually, this question was triggered by uh, Kipch- Chiptege's record uh, because he broke a 16-year-old uh, record of Bekele, right? And which kind of sounded long in all this quick progression we see in uh, athletics. Uh, so I thought, okay, let, so that's why I dug around, dug out this question. Yeah, actually. I think that there's a few like that. The women's 400 is also, but Marita correct is, is very yeah. close. And then I think there, I can't remember if there's like a discus or women's hundred is also late. Oh 80s, yeah, Flojo, right? yeah, at 88. Uh, record is also yeah, late 80s. I remember yeah. The next one is an autobiography. Inside Track is the autobiography of which uh, famous athlete? Inside Track. That's it. it was a little bit of a controversial one at that time. I was I was going to guess like Zola Bud or uh, or uh, Mary Slaney, but oh no no I don't know. Uh, think of an uh, th- think of a male American athlete. Inside, I'm trying to th- think if the tra- if the title has some significance or, or like because I was thinking you know, Zola Bud passed on the inside. Uh, um, a male American, uh, Carl Lewis, or uh, yes, it's Carl Lewis. Inside, it, track. it is Carl Lewis. Interesting. I, I haven't read that one. Is it good? Go, good guess. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't read it either. Um, huh. So, but uh, it, I, he, I was he's just, definitely a character. Uh, it's a somewhat of a controversial book. I'm looking forward to getting it. Okay, uh, this is interesting. Uh, what commonly eaten vegetable is actually a flower? <laughs> I'm sure you, you, you have it at least once a week, I'm sure. A commonly eaten vegetable that's actually a flower. I mean, logically, I would think cauliflower should be the answer, but it doesn't look like a flower. Close something which broccoli close to cauliflower. Broccoli, yes. I was gonna say bro- broccoli looks more like a flower than cauliflower, but okay. Hey, I th- I'm learning so something. This is great. The answer. <laughs> then uh, there is something unique uh, the organizers have done in the making of the medals for the Tokyo Olympics 2020. Uh, what is it? Ah, I I believe they were they're recycled. Is that? Oh, yeah. it's from they, from, they from tech tech. Uh, uh, um, electronics waste. Yeah. Yes. They are using electronic waste for all the medals, actually, gold, silver, and bronze, uh, huh. So, which otherwise would have found their way to a landfill. And the last one is uh, Wick Clapham is credited with starting which famous ultramarathon race? Oh, Comrades. So, excellent. So, that you did very well, Alex. Uh, I think you are the first guest who got all of them. So oh, I well didn't done. get all of them. I missed the first one, I think. But yeah, oh, the well, Carl Lewis one I didn't get. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, uh, what are some of your uh, rec- other recommendations? Obviously, you know. Once again, I let uh, I mean tell listeners to if you haven't read the book uh, Endure, by all means, uh, you should read it. It's one of those mandatory readings if you are interested, not just in running. I mean, in any sort of uh, endurance sports fantastic book i'm sure once you have read it you will keep going back to it for various passages and chapters uh i would like to know other recommendations from your side in terms of some blogs website books you recommend youtube channels other podcasts what a couple of recommendations that'll be very helpful sure yeah in terms of sort of my specialty area of science of sport 
I, th I think the best book that I've read and the one that I modeled in Dear After is The Sports Gene by David Epstein. Okay. Um, really, really excellent book. Really rigorous, really honest to the science. Um, David Epstein also has a newer book that's just out last year, which is deals more broadly with uh, talent identification and, and development. Or, or it's called Range, uh, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialist World. And it's also a fascinating book. Um, less specific to sport. Um, okay. There's a book by uh, Christia Schwanden, who's a, a science journalist, called um, Good to Go. I, can't, I think the subtitle is The Strange Science of Athletic Recovery or what the, si what the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. Something. Anyway, it's a scientific evaluation of recovery, of, 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 the, of uh, athletic recovery, because there's a ton of... Um, marketing and, and interest in how do we recover faster after my workout? What should I do? Should I be taking an ice bath? Should I be, uh, you know, taking a supplement? Should I be taking electric therapy or whatever? Um, Christy is a very, uh, skeptical reporter. She, she, uh, she, she debunks uh, the book is, is you're not going to come away with like, these are the, the six most effective supplements for recovery. And instead you're going to come away thinking carefully about what it means to recover and and how how we might do that and what the role of the mind is in recovery, so I think it's a good exercise for uh, a good um, a, yeah a good way of challenging your thinking about what what are the assumptions I'm making about what works and what doesn't and what I'm doing and what I could be doing. So yeah, good okay. to go by Christia Schwanden. Um, there's a, a a couple of books by. Steve Magnus, who's a track coach in, in Houston, and uh, Brad Stolberg, who's a sort of perf a performance coach. Um, one, the first one was called um, Peak Performance, and the second is called The Passion Paradox. Peak Performance in particular is a, it's a kind of overview of the, the broad literature about what it takes to, to perform at your best in sports and other areas. So it, it talks a, lo a lot about some of the some of the ideas that I sort of mentioned in a glancing way, but don't really go into about how to optimizing mental performance and, and uh, um, you know, mindset and the, the, the effects of the effects that what you think have on, on how you actually perform. So yeah, peak performance by uh, um, Steve Magnus and Brad Stolberg. And I guess I, I will also say I have a, a soft spot for, for some of the older books about the sport. So for people who are interested in track and field, if you're interested in the two, the two hour marathon barrier, Roger Bannister's autobiography, which he wrote in 1955, it's been published under a, a couple of titles. Um, I think, let's see, it's sometimes called the first four minutes or just the, I think the, the edition that I have, which is the, I think the, the title in the, in the, Commonwealth was uh, the four minute mile. And it's just really interesting, both for the the race towards the four minute mile. Um, but also Bannister was a thoughtful guy about the, you know, what role sport should play in your life. Uh, he was, you know, the, obviously he has, he came from a place of great privilege. Um, and so, you know, he was able to be an amateur athlete and, and not worrying about supporting himself in other ways. But um, I, I find him a, a, a I, I've read that book many, many times and, and I find it very, I have rare. read this one, the Roger Bannister autobiography, the four minute, it's excellent. Okay. I will yeah. I'll put, put links to all of this 
in my uh, in my show notes and of course all the links to uh, uh, your website as well as the Swiss Science column and all of that. Uh, and if any of the listeners want to uh, contact you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Probably the best way is on Twitter. Uh, at, at My handle is Sweat Science, all one word. And uh, you can send me a message on Twitter and I'll, I'll, I'll reply. I, I mean, it's not always immediately, but I do check my uh mentions in twitter and i and I, i'll reply to anyone who asks asks the question uh, as, okay. as possible Excellent. Uh, thanks a lot alex uh, you have given us uh, quite a lot of great insight as always and thanks a lot for your time really appreciate it thanks raj it's really been uh, a fun conversation i appreciate the the interest in the great questions and the great conversation thank you alex thank you very much to all the listeners Please check out the podcast website runfitraj.com that is r u n f i t r a j.com it has all the podcasts it has all the show notes and there is a very useful search function as well you can reach out to me on my social media handles which are running and fitness with raj on both instagram and facebook and you can also email me on running and fitness with raj at gmail.com please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy and till the next show. Goodbye.